Why don't we go ahead and start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, as we begin this mission, this time for gathering, to know you more, to ask for greater hope in the future, our young people and their ability to come to know Christ, inspire us all to play our own part to be able to share the gospel and to renew minds and hearts. We ask this, as we ask all things, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So you see, right at the beginning of the talk, we have a technical difficulty. So I really appreciate Father's introduction. My name is Father Bryce Sibley. As he said, I'm a priest of the Diocese of Lafayette and currently serving at Notre Dame Seminary. Um, and I love giving parish missions and it's wonderful to see so many people here. Um, I have been a priest for 23 years. And as he said, I was for 11 years up until about a year and a half ago, the pastor and chaplain over at UL home of the Ragin Cajun Catholics. Fortunately, we'll be done their Mission Wednesday, so I can watch them hopefully not get slaughtered by Tennessee in the NCAA tournament on Thursday. But over those 11 years, I worked with literally thousands of college students. They're uniquely stretching from the end of one generation, the millennials, to the beginning of Generation Z, or iGen, ones that were sort of born after 2007 and the advent of the iPhone. And working with a unique population, they're at a very vulnerable time, very willing to be formed, but also realizing that they all chose to be there. Parents didn't force them to come to Mass or to come to different events. And so it was very good because we had a willing population who usually wanted to grow in holiness, who wanted to grow close to Jesus. And so people will often ask me to share about my experience. We had one of the larger and more successful ministries in the nation. And the people who ask me, they say, Father, we saw so many wonderful things going on in wisdom, but yet we hear in the news all this terrible stuff. Young adults not going to Mass, they call them the nons, they don't claim any faith, problems with drugs, sex, alcohol. People tend to be down on the younger generations and asking me, what was my experience? Well, well, of course, I know all the the problems and everything that we hear in the news, my attitude is a little different. And what really sort of made me think about this and the need to maybe put it into some sort of a presentation, I was having dinner with friends a year ago when I was overseas, and we were talking about ministry during COVID. When all the churches were shut down and how many people struggled with their faith during that time. And they asked me what my experience was. Of course, I told them that we had parishioners there. We also, about 300 families, we also had a lot of students. My experience is different. I saw the faith explode. People having the time to pray, to discern vocations. People went back to Mass, particularly amongst the younger people. 
And they were shocked and surprised by this, so counter to everything that they had experienced, and encouraged me to sort of think about it and to be able to share. And so that's what I came up with. Not only a talk about COVID, I'm really not going to talk about that, but my ministry in general. Yeah, there are bad things. There are problems. And most of you, I'm sure here, parents or grandparents have kids who have fallen away from the church and are no longer practiced and it weighs on your heart. But I'm here to show you or try to show you that there are signs of hope. Things are not as bad as you think they are. And particularly signs of hope in Catholic campus ministry. Over the course of, let's say, the past 10 to 15 years, there's been a lot of renewal. Stuff that was going on in the 70s or 80s uh, no longer goes on, or at least in most places. And there's a very effective ministry model. And that's really what I want to be able to share with all of you. Some of these signs of hope, but not just that, to be able to offer, hopefully, concrete ways that you as parents, see there are a lot of grandparents here too, can hopefully implant some seeds in your young people to be able to offer them a little bit of formation and at least be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And, and I learned these things from my experience, and I think ultimately not just as a minister, but in my evolution as a priest and learning to form and to love and to work with these young people as a spiritual father. Many of you here are actually biological fathers, grandfathers, mothers and grandmothers. And my experience may be more like St. Joseph's. It's more of a spiritual, a foster father, but... They are young people that I consider to be my own children. So what I'm going to do is try to break it up. And so I have this presentation here, Signs of Hope Amongst Today's Young Catholics. Uh, Of course, there there I am. And if you want to have a little background of who I am, born in Lafayette, ordained in 2000. I studied in Rome and got my degree from the John Paul II Institute for marriage and the family, and of course served at UL and now at Notre Dame Seminary. And the ministry that we had was founded in 1923, 100 years this year, uh, ministering to over 12,000, 12, I should be 12,000, not 1,200, 12,000 undergrads. Focus been present there since 2011, and of course, as we'll see later, blessed with many vocations. But what I want to talk about today from my own experience, the three things that I think all of us really desire, but in particularly young people desire. Young people desire. And so we're going to break it up according to three nights. The first is a desire to be seen. Flesh it out more as a desire to be seen, known, and loved. That's going to be tonight. Then we're going to talk about tomorrow the desire to belong, the need for relationships, for community, for friendships, and then finally the desire to be chosen by another, but ultimately to be chosen by God. And so we're going to start that first night with the first one, what it means to be seen. And so if you're going to ask me, Father, from from your own experience or from my own experience, 
what is the thing that we all want as humans or all need more than anything? And I have my little catchphrase, I'm sure I stole it from somebody else, that we as humans all need to be seen, known, and loved. We need to be seen, known, and loved. It's part of our our proper psychological and human development. Then it has to start at a very young age where we are seen and loved for who we are, for the very fact that we're human, that we exist, and not for what we've done, that our worth doesn't come from our accomplishments, and often as we get older, in spite of the bad things that we've done, to the need to receive unconditional love and acceptance. We all want it. We're always looking for it. It's so important that we actually need it. And it has to start, as I said, when you're a kid, for, for humans to sort of grow and develop properly on the emotional and psychological level, we need affirmation. To be told, not just in word, but in deed, it's good that you exist. It's good that you're here. It's good that you were born. And primarily, that's going to come from the love of the parents. Not just the the affirmation by words, but by the, the loving embrace. There's one theologian who talks about the power of the smile of the mother. The mother continuously smiles at her child. It elicits a response, an acknowledgement that the child, even from this very youngest age, comes to know on a deep level that it's good that he or she exists. And this love helps to secure identity as humans, that we are loved and we are lovable that we should be cherished, that we should be treated never as a means to an end. And this is the formation that we ought to receive as kids, but let me tell you, as most of you probably know, we all need it, in particular when we are in high school or in college. And particularly in college, as, as young people often sort of break away from their parents for the first time. Some of them leaving to go to college in a different city. And so here it's a really important process of maturation. For the first time, I am free. And often what does that mean? It's time to party. It's time to make some bad decisions. But ultimately, it's a decision for autonomy. I want to make my own decisions. I want to form my own identity. I want to be my own person. But it doesn't mean that all of a sudden, because they're trying to make their own decisions, that they're not in need of affirmation, approval from peers and adults. They want to be still seen, or as we can put it, respected. The word respect comes from that Latin word spectare, to be seen. I want to be respected for the decisions I make, for who I am, for the career that I choose. And this is all really normal and good. And if you're good parents, you are going to support and affirm the decisions that your children make. 
Assuming they're not making decisions that are going to destroy their lives or hurt other people. But if they're going to choose a career that you don't like, too bad. Let them choose it. The harm from you trying to manipulate and control is going to be much worse than the fact that they may go down the wrong path. Pray for them and hope they come back into line. And so what happens is, college students in doing this, as you might imagine, just like young people do, begin and that need for affirmation, that need for, for being seen, can resort to some attention-seeking behavior. A lot of it is their own perfectionism. I feel that need to perform in order to get attention, in order to be loved. Some of it they're going to do in behavior that can be self-destructive, but a lot of the times it's just living this kind of radical personality. Not necessarily tied to wounds, but often just very immature and silly. But ultimately they want to be noticed. And while you try to put them in line and give them the attention they want, you can't ignore them. So what I want to do over the course of this retreat is is sort of talk about a few examples. I've more or less gotten permission from the people that I'm going to talk about. And so when it comes to this desire for attention, and there can be all kinds of attention-seeking behavior, when I was thinking of people who loved attention in college, I want to focus on my good friend Bradley Jutte. Brad started, he's actually from Laplace, Brad started at UL back in 2012, and Bradley, well, let's just put it this way, he was a nerd, and he loved attention, and as a result of that, I often wanted to kill him. He drove me crazy. He drove the other campus ministers crazy. Because of his behavior, if you pay attention to the Lord, Brad G.T., destined for a life of celibacy. There was no way he was going to get a date. He wore suspenders. He looked like a slob in general. And so we kind of give him a hard time. And he, he fell into, okay, this is supposed to jump ahead. Let's see? Now it's not. Okay, here we go. He fell into this group of three students that I, on average, wanted to kill every day. And so this is actually from a classic movie, if you ever get a hold of it, uh, Don Camillo. It's based off of these Italian books about a priest in a small Tuscan town, and uh, he's always fighting with the communists there. It's a comedy. And so here we had Bradley, who I often wanted to kill, Treville, that was seven years of wanting to strangle him, and then Jacob. Jacob also wanted to strangle. And so I had this in my office. I had this picture in my office. And every year when a guy would graduate and a new one would come and be, we'd replace it with a little tag. So no, that we were able to pick on each other and laugh at each other. But there was really no chance that I thought that Bradley was ever going, I don't know why this is not working now. Okay, look. There, Bradley was ever going to get a date. This is how he would come dressed to school. So this is an old meme Bradley sent me this morning. Father, why can't I get a date? And then all of a sudden, a girl started dating him. A really sweet girl from New Orleans. And we couldn't believe it. 
But over the time, you know, doing my best, we're going to see that we're going to have a problem with this over the course of our time together, it appears. We're going to adjust for tomorrow, don't worry. Um, We never gave up on him. We gave him a hard time. Oh, believe me, we gave him a hard time. Even to the point of wanting to pin him down and just ripping his face off. But eventually, this is the secret knowledge most people don't know. Bradley, because he was accepted and had a community and was loved, he started maturing a little bit. The other secret was Bradley was studying engineering. And so ladies like when boys study engineering. They may dress like that, but eventually, eventually they are going to be reputable guys. And so a few years ago, I actually did Bradley's wedding. And he married this wonderful girl. And, oh, come on, phone. All right, hold on a second. Let me see if I can, um, I think, oh, I see the problem is. The problem is our internet connection. So what I'm going to have to do is probably just control it from here. Uh, no, it has to be on the same network for Look at that. Look at that. Bradley and Katie and their beautiful children. He, he found a date. He didn't end up becoming a priest. And they got married and so involved in the church, so active, so happy. It's just such a wonderful thing to see. So I, I, I sent Bradley. I said, hey, can I get some pictures of you when you were a big nerd? But also with you and your kids. It's a success story. But why? Bradley and all of his attention needed to be seen. And even though it wasn't always the most healthy of attention-seeking behavior, we gave him that attention and look what he turned out to be. Now, from my experience though, most often what we see is not that attention-seeking behavior, but young people who do exactly the opposite. They're the ones who hide, who desperately want to be seen, but they are not shy, but they're filled with shame. I'm sure many of you, if you pay attention to Internet and YouTube, shame is a hot topic. Shame is not like guilt in this sense. Guilt is I I'm, did something wrong and I'm sorry for it. Shame is I'm ashamed of who I am as a person, either because of things that I've done or am doing, often sins against the Sixth Commandment, or things that were done to me. And so as a result, they want to hide and see themselves as unloved or unlovable. And so we hide, we, we cover ourselves. Could be in a way of dress, but it's a way of just sort of stepping back on the sidelines, trying to avoid being noticed. And the best example of this is gonna be Adam and Eve. After the fall, what did they do? They hid, they covered themselves. It's a sign of insecurity, a fear of vulnerability, a fear of being hurt. Not only by other people, but ultimately by God. Remember Adam and Eve, let's hide from God. He was no longer a loving father, but he became a threat. There was a suspicion of God. And when we hide, and we all have a tendency to do this, where do we often like to hide? We like to hide in our heads. And that's when we begin listening to the voice of the accuser. We begin hearing all of these lies. I'm a burden, I'm a bother, I'm unloved, I'm unlovable. As I said, there can be many origins of that, but over the course of working with campus ministry, particularly in doing spiritual direction, I was usually pretty quick to able to spot, well, this person's living in shame. 
This person's got a lot of self-hatred. And how do you do it? You've got to be able to do your best to see them. So I'm going to give you a story. Another student who is absolutely adorable. Now, there are probably a couple of times I'll start crying tonight because I love some of these kids. I didn't cry for Bradley, so just I don't love him that much. Just you can let him know that. So here's this young woman named Jenny. And so Jenny, this was after her beginning to overcome her own shame and insecurity. Sweet girl, never the victim of any kind of abuse or anything. But there's a lot of times you get on social media, you compare yourself, you live with shame. But she finally got out of it. She'd come talk to me sometimes, and it was had big glasses on, and she, you could tell she was hiding. The way she dressed, the way she behaved. No one knew her. She was always in the periphery. Until she finally went to one of these big conferences, our big seek conference. And boy, she got a dose of the Holy Spirit. And something began to change. And she started talking to me and others about her shame and insecurity. Then something happened. And it's one of the, the, the most amazing things I've seen. Someone who literally no one saw and no one noticed became the brightest, most loving personality who transformed the student center over my last few years there. She became this mother to all of these students. And she was 21 years old. It's so joyful. And as a result, I'm not only going to highlight this, I'm going to highlight all things. She felt a call. The Lord was calling her to belong to him totally. And so now, for the past year, year and a half, she is, and of course, we're having problems again. We're just going to forget it. She has now become Sister... Come on, picture. You gotta be kidding. You gotta be kidding me. All right. So anyhow, I have a picture of her as a sister. She's a sister. She's beautiful. Sister Virgin Mother. I love her. And it's such a great picture from her investiture. And it was that transformation of someone who just remained hidden for so long to a person who became this this bright personality. Let's see if I can figure this out. I know I have all kinds of pictures. Uh, where is it? No, do not, do not have it there. I don't even know what I did with it, y'all. I'm so sorry. Bummer. Technology, frustrating. I have plenty of pictures of Brad Juti, though. But anyhow, we'll just continue. So what I want to do is, 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 is looking at this, I learned, and this is the message for tonight, how important it was for me as priest and pastor to learn to see the students, to see them, to recognize them, to affirm them in their being. And I did it. Often I'd see them every day for four years. Unlike a normal parish where you see somebody for about an hour a week, some of these kids I saw from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. every day for four years. Because they lived at the student center. It was a home away from home. Many times I loved them. Many times I wanted to strangle them. But I had to learn patience. And I came to understand that a lot of the times these young people who were so good and loved Jesus so much, they weren't really seen by their parents. The parents in their own struggles really had a hard time seeing and recognizing them for who they are often maybe putting too much pressure on them to perform in sports or academics. So they feared failing. 
terribly. Our parents who often, and peers, were lost in their phones or on their TVs, but the kids are screaming for attention, but the parents were unable to do it. Or they were emotionally distant or working or too much in a hurry. I'm not trying to put the blame on anybody, but that's the reality. It's a lot of young people that parents and grandparents and friends were not paying attention to. So I had to learn to see, to pay attention, particularly as a spiritual father. To not just see them, but also to see the signs of insecurity, of pain. And one of the the, the ways that I can best put it is from this French philosopher, some of you may know her, Simone Weil. She died, she was about 34 years old, and she has this beautiful essay on the power of study and paying attention. And I gave just give a, a whole other mission on this, the need to pay attention. And she talks about paying attention to the world around us, but paying attention to people. And the real question that we ask if we're paying attention to people is, what is this person going through? So we could sit and judge and condemn, but when I begin understanding, this kid is acting a certain way, they're trying to hide, they're looking for attention, they're involved in self-destructive behavior, what are they going through? What has their childhood been like? What kind of trauma have they had since they've been in college? And then learning to see behind the mask or the walls and the ability to see hearts. I'm wrong sometimes. But I've done this long enough that I can spot someone who is trying to hide. I can spot someone who is trying to seek attention. But the key is this, that I learned this, and I think it's something that we all can learn. That when we learn to see others, particularly when we learn to see our young people, which leads us to knowing them and loving them, we're actually communicating the love of God the Father whether we're actual fathers, mothers, or spiritual fathers or mothers. And, 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 and I love quotes, and the quote that I use most often, I have it on my wall, in fact, in my office, is from Father Jacques Lee. I'm sure many of you like Father Jacques Lee. Yeah, I love Father Jacques. We were so blessed in 2015 to have Father Jacques come and preach our Lenten mission. Much more exciting than having me preach, preach, preach your Lenten mission. Tell him, believe me. And look, Father Jacques is really as holy as you think he is. He really is. He's so wonderful, so joyful. And, and I love quoting him. And uh, one of my favorite quotes is, the, well, I jumped ahead. This is not the one that I want. Um, is about being seen. Let's see if I've jumped ahead too much. No? Nope. Sorry, y'all. I really must have messed up. We're going to come back to that, I guess. I'll give you the quote without it being up there. I'm learning humility today. He says this, We urgently need the mediation of another's eyes to love ourselves and accept ourselves. The eyes may be those of a parent, a friend, a spiritual director, but above all, they are those of God our Father. The look in his eyes is the purest, truest, tenderest, most loving, and most hope-filled in the world. We learn to see with the eyes of God the Father. Even the young people or old people who are broken or wounded, we learn to ask what they're going through. We quit judging. We quit condemning. We try to see what's good in them. That, that It's like the, the Father sees them, and they know it. 
They know they're seen. They may try to hide sometimes, but eventually things will begin to change. One of our missionaries say, wisdom is this place that you can't hide. You can't hide. And I said, well, let me be a little more positive. I'm usually with the glasses half empty, but let me be more positive. It's a place where you're going to be seen because the community was so strong. And so we need to be worrying about creating places where our children, our young adults, and everyone can be seen or they can be paid attention to. But what happens is, whenever we look at people with love, whenever we recognize and see beyond the facade, beyond the walls, to see who they are, whether we realize it or not, we work to help establish the identity of others. Because ultimately, if we are looking at them, or God the Father is looking at them through us, what is their identity going to be? Our culture talks about, well, my gender is my identity, my sexuality is my identity, my hobby, my sports, whatever is my identity. But our foundational identity as Christians is that we are beloved sons and daughters of God our Heavenly Father. Foundational. It builds on our own human foundation of being a child, a son or a daughter. And what I've come to find out is this. If you, particularly as a young adult, don't have this, you're going to have some times that are good or bad, but if you are not grounded in your identity, and you know God the Father loves you for who you are, no matter how it's been communicated to you, you can have all the prayer you want, you can have all the theology, but none of it matters until you hear who God says you are. Until you're able to see yourself as the Father sees you and have a great trust in his love for you. Of course, as Christians, we believe we receive this through baptism. And as we pray and as we live and as we encounter God in the church and in other people, then things begin to change. You can try to establish your identity all you want, but it's something that's given. And that's the quote that popped up here from Father Jacques. Our true identity is not so much a reality to be constructed as a gift to be received. It's not about achieving, but letting ourselves be begotten. Begotten by God, who often uses other individuals as a means for communicating his grace. As a means for communicating his love. And so, for me, the the key biblical passage, and of course it appears that I have these these slides out of line... I don't know why. Let's see. We, I see exactly what happened. Canva did not save the, the edits that I made. So we're done with slides for the night. But I still have some stories. I'm pretty sure that's what happened. Um, technology. Let's see if I can resolve this. Anyhow, the slide that I had here, which I was hoping to show you before, this program killed my presentation. Uh, was a picture of the baptism of Jesus. And in that picture, you had Jesus who was being baptized. And this wonderful quote, yeah, that's what I've done in my, um, I'll have it prepared for tomorrow. Sorry about that. I did put a lot of work into it. It's the passage of Jesus' baptism. 
Whenever the, the, the heavens open up and what you hear the Father say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is the central text for identity. The Son, our sons and daughters, establishes our fundamental identity that we are God's children. We're dependent upon him. Unfortunately, a lot of us have a flawed idea of who God is because possibly what our parents were like, our upbringing, that he could be seen potentially as a, a capricious tyrant or a distant deity. Most often what I've seen is he's this taskmaster who's expecting us to be perfect all of the time. And we're so afraid to make a mistake. And so as a result, we have a really hard time leaning into being a son or a daughter. We're always trying to impress. We're always living in fear. And, and, and if you think this is not true, I'm going to give you an example why it's true. Not last Christmas, the Christmas before, middle of the pandemic, Disney released on Disney Plus a movie called Encanto. And I remember watching it, and I said, when this movie gets out, it is going to be a hit. Because it is perfectly made for young people, particularly young women, who are perfectionists and who try to achieve love by performance. And who also have a mother or matriarch who is manipulative and hateful. That's a different story. And believe me, it became a big hit, not just because of the music, because they knew so often it was a struggle for young people to lean into their fundamental identity as sons or daughters. But not just as sons or daughters. If you pay attention to the passage, it, this is my beloved son, the son or daughter who is loved unconditionally, who truly believes that it's good that they exist. And even if they make a mistake, are they weak, are they broken, Father is not going to give up on them. It's still there to love them and cherish them. He sees our desire to please him. But for me, it's the, the third point and the one that we often skip over that is the most important, particularly for us conveying to our young people that he is well pleased. You could translate that in a number of different ways. I think one of the great ways of translating is, he's proud of you. This is my beloved son in whom I'm proud. I tell you, young people, more than they need to hear that you love them, they need to hear that you're proud of them. Not, not just for their achievements, but for who they become, who they are. And again, I even say I want to go a level beyond that. I learned it when I realized I talked to several students who said, Father, I know that I'm loved. My parents are supposed to love me. But I don't think they like me. I don't think they like me. I'm a burden. I aggravate them. And so that's when I realized that it's not just about loving them. It is not just about being proud of them. Another translation is, this is my beloved son in whom I delight. Do you enjoy being with your children? Do you delight in them? Does your face light up when you see them? Like, I, I got to see Sister Virgin Mother and a bunch of the sisters on Friday. I drove three hours to Natchez just to spend an afternoon with them. My face lit up. I was so excited to see them. And so, 
ability to delight in our own children. Not for what they do, but just for who they are. One of my favorite sort of things that I talk about in class and in the talks that I give is a study that was done amongst kids who are athletes. And they asked these kids, what is the most important thing that means the most to you that your parents have ever told you? And you think, well, are you a great home run or a wonderful game or you did your best? No. Universally, it was, I love to watch you play. Not about achievement. I just like to watch you play. I delight in being there with you and seeing you. And so what I, I did over the course of my own reflecting on this, a person who is able to live their identity and allow others or mediate or directly let the Father see them and live in his gaze, this is called living in the gaze or the vision of the Father. Not ashamed, not trying to hide. This is who I am. I am confident that he loves me. And the Catechism talks about this, that Jesus always did what was pleasing to the Father. And so those of us who are called to be Christians are called to live in the sight of the Father. And so I was able clearly to see signs of young people and adults who I believe really do that, who know the Father's love for them and who live in their sight and are and are secure in their identity. Now, four characteristics I look for. First of all, they're confident. Not prideful, but they're confident. They know who they are. They're not going to be shaken easily. The storms could come, but they know the Lord loves them. They have a great trust in his love. They're secure. They're not crippled by insecurity all the time, worrying about offending people, worried that God's going to abandon them. They're secure in their identity. They have the freedom of the sons of God. There's a freedom there. They're not worried about all the time making the wrong decision. They know the Lord has entrusted them. And so they're not interested in the Lord micromanaging their life, particularly as the freedom in loving others and being the gaze for others. And then finally, and most importantly, for me, the surest sign of holiness, people who are living in the gaze of the Father exhibit joy. Joyful people. Think of the people that you know that are the holiest. They are often the most joyful people. So who's the perfect example of this? It's going to be Mary. The, the, the Lord has looked with favor on his handmaid's lowliness. The joy of the Magnificat. No shame, no sin, no hiding. She lived as a daughter. But here's the reality. This sounds all nice and wonderful, but we all know that our children, particularly our young adults, are going to make dumb decisions. They're going to make stupid mistakes. They're going to hurt themselves and often hurt others, unlike Mary. And as a result, they're going to want to hide. They're filled with shame. And this is where I realized as a priest, because I was acting in the role of a parent quite often, where the role of parents in general, fathers and mothers or those who communicate or mediate, the gaze of the father became so important. It's not a time to judge, but to show merciful love. To be able to call higher and to let them know that they're still loved, 
even in their failure. That's the biggest thing. Perfection is not about I want to be perfect. Perfection is I don't want to fail and disappoint. You are God. But you're not a disappointment. You failed. You made a mistake. You sinned. It's going to be okay. I live in this tremendous fear of judgment. You've got to understand this. That anyone 35 and under, we all don't want to be judged. A tremendous fear of judgment. And if they suspect you are going to judge them, they will run in the other direction. And so we've got to really pull against this desire to judge or to criticize, to err on the side. Particularly, I'm not talking about little bitty kids, even though you've got to be careful with words. They can burn and kids will remember it. But when they get older, to not show judgment. And I learned this in confession. I would hear every day in wisdom at least one hour of confessions. Not so. And again, sometimes I get frustrated. Trust me, I'm human. Mostly, okay, we're going to try again. We're going to get up. We're going to keep pressing on. And to be able to understand and a willingness not only to show mercy, but to say, hey, if you need to come back again in a week, I'm here. And if you need to talk about it outside of confession, let's work through it. A willingness to accompany to develop a friendship. We're going to talk about that more tomorrow. But you can never force. As much as you want to show mercy and you're going to try to show mercy, the prodigal son's going to leave sometimes. The older son's not going to come into the house. And it was really that, that prodigal son, my favorite scripture passage, that really helped me to meditate and reflect on how I am called, how we are called to see our children, that merciful gaze. And so I have a belief, though, that as much as we can be right and we can point out certain things, why they should be going to church, why they shouldn't be doing this, and we call our young people higher, that ultimately in the end, erring on the side of mercy, our merciful love, is going to produce better fruit. Now, I give you a story, and I have the picture for it, but of course, I erred and deleted it. It was a young woman. Her name is Krista. Krista got there when I first got there in 2010. This is a story that I don't tell all the time, but she tells it and her stories. And so Krista graduated tremendously talented. It's going on to do great things in the church. She started working for us, and she was in charge of social media. Social media. And we had had this event coming up, and we would often use Facebook or social media to make advertisements. And you would often, like, pay for advertisements by the click, or by how many people saw it. And so we had a little budget scheduled, I think, for the event we had. You know, we were willing to spend two, three hundred dollars. And so I left before the event. I was going to a conference in California. I remember it was beautiful California weather. I was sitting by the beach at a restaurant with some friends, and I get a phone call. It's from Krista. Why is she calling me? I'm not here. I picked it up, and I know Krista well enough, I could hear the fear and trepidation in her voice. She said, calm down. Daughter started crying. What's going on? What happened was, she clicked the wrong setting on the Facebook advertisement, and instead of budgeting and shutting it off, it kept going for a couple of weeks. And so Facebook sent us a bill for $10,000. 
And I remember she was ready for me to rip her head off. I could have fired her for making a mistake like that. It's going to cost her $10,000. I said, Krista, don't worry. You made a mistake. It's not a big deal. We're going to figure it out. It wasn't that you did it maliciously. You didn't steal $10,000. You'll never do it again. <laughs> but you know what we're going to do? We're going to, we're going to make an extra $10,000 at the auction, which we did. And, it was, and she tells that story now, even that wasn't a sin. It was me willing to show mercy and such a big event. She knew what she did was wrong, that it ended up leading her to having a much deeper conversion. She said that was a, a decisive point. And in her testimony and talk, she gives it. So she actually went on to do nationwide speaking for the pro-life cause and is now doing campus ministry at uh, the universities, Caltech and whatnot, in California, Pasadena, doing a great job and really discerning what the Lord wants in her life. So how do we do it? And this is where I had my little, my little thing. I'll maybe have it produced tomorrow better. I'm going to go back and fix my mistake. How do we do this practically? And you can't live with college students. But I still believe parents and grandparents and friends, if we begin trying to adapt the way we do things, we can begin having an impact. Helping young people and other people know that they're seen in love. So I have five things. I had a really nice presentation of them, too. First of all, and this really starts when you're young, we've got to build trust with our kids. They will not listen to you if they don't trust you. To do what you can, to build trust, to let them know. If you get in trouble, you can come to me. I'm not going to judge you. You can trust me. We're going to work through this together. So what happens is, is parents are often so distant. And the kids don't trust them. They don't have a relationship with them. And so when the kids get in trouble, we think we're going to get punished. We go in the opposite direction. A great example of this is a parent who did it exceptionally. Their young son, about 11 or 12, Started getting hooked into pornography, as kids do. But instead of just sort of spiraling downwards, he went to his dad because his dad had worked for years to build up trust and say, Dad, I'm looking at porn. I'm ashamed. And you know what the dad said? Man, thanks for coming to talk to me. I know it's really difficult. But you know what? It's going to be okay. We're going to get through this together. And the kid now, no problem. Because the parent had worked, though, for those 11 years to build up trust. Grandparents and parents, even if kids are older, and maybe you don't have that same relationship, let them know it's okay. You're not going to turn them over to the cops. You're not going to judge them. You're not going to condemn them. We're going to get through this together. Number two, learn to pay attention. None of us are perfect at it. Learn to be able to see other people. And to ask that question, what are you going through? So you see your kids are doing all these crazy things and, and, and misbehaving. Well, do you ever ask, what are they going through? Maybe they're having a hard time in marriage, a hard time at work. Maybe there's some abuse that they endured in college that you have no idea about. Maybe there's some trauma they had in their childhood that you have no idea about. It's leading them to act out in certain ways. 
seen it so many times, particularly with young women, get to college. And they get hurt. And they don't tell anybody. All they were looking for, potentially, is a person who would be willing to listen, who pay attention. I tell you so many times, they're like, I saw somebody change their behavior. I could see it in the flick of their eye. Something happened. What happened? And to be able to share that, either a bad decision that they made or some trauma they went through, that's when healing begins. Number three, affirm and encourage. We have a generation that maybe it's because of the internet and cancel culture is so afraid of criticism. Be very, very careful in dealing out criticism. Sometimes you're gonna have to, but do it in a positive manner. Try to affirm and encourage and build up our young people. Number four, delight in your children. Spend time with them, enjoy being with them. Sometimes I know they get aggravating. But it's the joy, particularly as you see, you know, I see these older kids, and I'm like, I love visiting with them. A lot of them now, as you'll see, have become my close friends, the ones that are in their 30s now. I have my group of guy friends and priest friends, but I have a bunch of 30-year-olds I hang around with. People probably think I'm crazy. Why is this priest going out with all these 30-year-olds? It's because they're, they're my kids, they're my friends. And enjoy being with them. What I particularly enjoy is for the four years they were in college, I paid for their coffee and their dinner, and now they're nurses and doctors and lawyers, and I am getting a free ride. <laughs> Tell you, like they come into New Orleans, oh, we're, we're, we're going to N7. Forget it. You're paying. I love it. And then finally, and they had the quote there, is offering unconditional hope. Unconditional love, but unconditional hope. I'm not going to give up on you. Never going to give up on you. I, I may need to take a step away until you can figure it out, but I'm going to wait for you to come back. But I'm never, ever giving up on you. Those are the five things that I think we can distill it for this point. That if we can do those things, we can help our young people be seen, which leads them to be known and to be loved. And then it has an impact on them, but it particularly will have an impact on you. My learning to do this, particularly in learning to spot shame and to be able to, to try to mediate the Father's eyes, changed me. So if I'm going to help them to see themselves as beloved sons and daughters, then guess what? I am going to start seeing myself as a father. Now granted, I had to get a little bit older where I actually could be old enough to be their fathers. And it wasn't something I chose. It just happened. I tell you the day that it happened. I can tell you the moment that it happened. Woke up, oh, and this one was. And, and there were a lot of students who helped me. One in particular, I remember the moment. And it was just like the love of the father in her heart. I love this student. I love her like my own daughter. And things began to change after that. And really, it is for me, a priest, the great joy of being able to not only be friends with a lot of these former students, and to be their spiritual father. And also to know that besides free meals, I tell them, I said, I want you either to marry a millionaire or become a millionaire. And I'm like, someone to have a house in Montana, someone to have a house in the California and Florida. So when I retire, I'll just travel around. Someone else to be able to have some plane tickets. So I don't have to pay for that too. And it really is a great joy. One of the greatest is marriages. Man, I'm doing 19 marriages this year, all from former students. And it really is, like to do Brad and Katie's marriage. I, I don't generally do marriages for people I don't know. I'm flying, 
to Ohio to do a marriage this weekend. I'll cry at the weddings. You know, it's like the dad. I've done a wedding where the dad gives away the kid, the daughter. I get to do that tons of times because of that unique gift. This is the gift that keeps on giving and continuously learning to show the father's love and to develop these friendships. But doing so in what I'm going to kind of close by of listening, of being in relationship, not only one-on-one, but as a group, and learning from them. Uh, there's a lot that we can learn from the younger generations, but the baby boomers don't like the millennials, the Generation Xers, they don't like the Generation Z. Generation Xers don't care about anything. That's how I'm a Generation Xer. But we, we judge. We don't like the way millennials do things. Well, why don't you learn something from them? You know, obviously I didn't learn how to do Canva well enough from them, but, you know, I'm trying. It can teach us a lot. And so it keeps me young. I'm about to turn 50, but I sometimes feel like I'm 35 because I'm hanging around and getting these new ideas and the news, news perspective. But here's the gift, and I'm going to quote, I'm going to close with this quote because it's so beautiful. It's from a priest who actually became a bishop. And he's talking about as a priest, or as a spiritual father, but I think you could apply it to others. You know, as a spiritual, spiritual, being a priest is lonely. No, you've got tons of children. Father has tons of children here. I got tons of children. It's, it's the Lord gives this bountiful existence. So many so that I, I don't even know what to do with it. But part of the gift that keeps on giving is that they give back to you. And the way that our children, if we love them well, and we hope in them, will change your life and your heart. And he's talking about the way of doing it. This is, this is fancy language. It's Italian. The itinerary of listening and proposing. Not controlling, not being that manipulative. Let the talk. Let the kid make his own decision as they get older. He says, this itinerary of listening and proposing brings us to a truly miraculous possibility. The possibility of becoming disciples of our own children in our maturity accepting to learn from them and to be generated and integrated by their experience. We witness this miracle. We can live an eternal youth, rediscovering in our children the liveliness of humanity, its deepest expectations and needs. Genuine fathers, and we can insert mothers, become the children of their children. It's true, 100% true. And that's the formation, if we're willing to open our eyes and let them see. So, close this tonight. Tomorrow I'll be back with all the fireworks on our mistakes. Um, and we're going to talk about that second great need that young people have, that we all have, is the need to belong. Particularly connected to a certain statistic and that need for maintaining our faith. So I'll just close with a blessing, and then I would really love to see you all back tomorrow. Please invite other people, uh, and thank you all for coming. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you. Thank you all so much for coming.